Good morning, everyone. Um, my name's Becca. Um, it's lovely to sort of meet you if this is meeting you, if I've not met you before. Um, I've lived in Durham for roughly nine years and two weeks, having come here as a fresher. Um, and I decided to stick around after university because Durham is a beautiful city and I love this church family. Um, hooray! Thanks, Ian. Um, Right now, however, most of my days are spent looking after um, our five-month-old daughter who is over there. She turned five months yesterday, and that means I haven't slept in five months. So, hooray! Um, I am passionate about a lot of things. I'm passionate about people. I'm passionate about books, uh, about cups of tea and dogs and film. But most of all, I'm passionate about seeing and knowing God for who he is and encouraging others to do the same. And so this morning, I'm so excited that I get to share with you from his word. Um, And we're starting a new sermon series, as you can see on the screen, called Generous God, Generous People. And I get to kick that off, um, which means there are no rules and I I get to pave the way before me. And my prayer this morning is that we will be able to gaze at God's majesty and beauty and grasp more of the height, breadth, depth and width of the loving generosity of the Father toward us and how that can shape our lives. And so I want to ask you, I wonder this morning how you see God. What words come to mind when you consider who he is? I'm actually going to give you a moment to think of one word that comes to mind when you think of who God is. Now, I wonder what word you would use. Maybe the word that came to mind was majestic or powerful. Maybe it was bridegroom or lover. Maybe it was friend. Perhaps you don't know him at all and the words that come to mind are distant, untouchable, unknowable. Maybe the word's malicious or unkind. Maybe after the service, you can, over coffee, tell someone what the word that you thought of when you thought of God was. You can chat about what that means and and why that word came to mind. Um, A.W. Tozer, who is a great author and theologian, said this, that what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It is more important than anything else. It's more important than who we're in a relationship with, how many friends we have, what our job is, how much money we have. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so that word that came to mind for you when you thought about God will shape who you are. And the good news is that God doesn't just leave us to ponder who he is. He doesn't just leave us to guess and work it out on our own. But he gives us a book that tells us all about him. And today we're going to read a story that tells us something about what God is really like. And through this story, I want to introduce you, if you haven't met him already, to a God who is generous beyond belief in words and in action, and whose generosity should shape us and change us to be generous too. So I'm going to pray before we start. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us. And Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, open our hearts and our minds to receive what you have for us this morning. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, that any words that I say that aren't of you, that it would fall on deaf ears. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, So if you've got a Bible, I would love for you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Um, The words will be on the screen, but if you've got a physical copy, I'd love for you to open that up. Well, the physical copy can be on your phone as well. Um, Most Bibles have a bookmark, mine does, 
Um, And so I want to encourage you to pop your bookmark in your Bible, or if it's on your phone, you should be able to bookmark where we're going, um, and have a read when you get home. Have a read of what God's going to say to you through the passage. I'm hoping that he'll reveal something through me this morning, um, but he loves to reveal himself through his word. And so I encourage you to put your bookmark in and go home and read the passage for yourself too. Luke is one of four eyewitness accounts of Jesus's earthly ministry. He also wrote the book of Acts, which comes in a few books time, um, which is filled with stories about the early church. Also a great read if you want to have a flick through that one. But we're going to start... reading Luke's book in chapter 15, which is on the screen there. Um, We're going to read verses 1 to 3, and then we're going to miss out a big chunk, and then we're going to come back in. It's not because the chunk that I'm missing out is bad, but you can read it in your own time. Um, So we're starting at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This story might be something that you're super familiar with. Um, Many of us might have heard the story before, or you might have never heard it before. And hopefully this will be applicable to both of you. But the wonderful thing about the Bible is that we never graduate beyond it. Whether you've heard this story a million times or never before, the gospel is never something that you graduate from. And so God still has new things to teach us this morning. And if you'd like to delve a little bit deeper into the passage than I will, um, I've got this book, which is excellent, The Prodigal God by Timothy Keller. You're very welcome to borrow my copy, and I've got another one at home if you'd like to learn more about it. Um, I'll cover a little bit, but he goes into a lot more depth than I do, so please feel free to come and ask me for the copy. As we start the passage, we understand why the story is being told. Um, We read in verse 2, which is actually way back, ignore that. We'll just pretend it's on the screen. Um, 
we read in verse 2 that the story is aimed at the Pharisees and the scribes, who were the super religious people of the day, the people who know their Old Testament back to front. They know absolutely everything. Um, They would be super familiar with the law, and they would try to follow it to the absolute letter. And they've become growingly frustrated with Jesus because the passage says that this man receives sinners and eats with them. They're people that try and do absolutely everything right, and so Jesus is infuriating. If we read through the chapters previous to this, you'll find Jesus rebuking the Pharisees time and time again and telling them that everyone needs to repent and that your religiousness will not save you. And so this story that Jesus tells would have been controversial, probably would have made the people he was telling it to pretty angry. And so as we jump in, we learn firstly that there are two sons, that one of them has asked his father for a share in the property. Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. In those days, the likelihood is that when the father dies, the younger son would be due to receive a third of his father's property and the older son would get two thirds. Significantly though, this would be when the father dies. So when we read this sentence, father, give me the share of property that's coming to me, we could reword this line to say, father, I wish you were dead, give me your money. And that's genuinely what the younger son is saying to his dad. We know nothing of the character of the father at this point, but the son basically just says, I want nothing to do with you. I just want your money. Can you imagine saying this to your parents? Asking them for your inheritance early. How would it have made them feel? I imagine pretty angry, probably upset, probably disappointed. All of those would have been valid emotions. But how does the father respond? We see this in the next end of this verse. And he divided his property between them. As simply as that, he listens to the son. I mean, we don't know what the time scale is here, but it seems like he just does what the son asks. In the original Greek here, the word property means something different to what it would be for us. It's not like a nice terrace house or a bungalow, but it's actually the livelihood of the father. It's his whole life. The father doesn't just give him a small bit of land and divide up maybe a little flat from the house that he has. But he gives him his stability, his livelihood. He gives him the things that he would have received when he died, but that the father needs for sustenance and stability. Or for a son that basically says, I want you to die. Already we start to see something of the generosity of this father figure. But then the story also progresses for the younger son. In verse 13, we learn what he does with what his father's given him. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. The son has no intention of ever going back to his father. He has gathered all he has, and he's gone. I want you to imagine again in this moment how that father would have felt. His son wishes him dead, he takes his money, and then he makes off for a life in which he will never see his family again. He would have been heartbroken and destroyed. I've been a parent for five months and I already find it difficult when I know that she's not in the same room as me. I can't imagine how this father would have felt to see his son leave him. Let alone because of his own free will because he doesn't want to know him anymore. I can imagine the father standing on the edge of the land watching as his son walks away out of sight. 
having tears in his eyes, knowing that his son is going to cause himself harm, but knowing that he can't force him to stay. And this is how the father feels with us too. The father in this story is just an earthly representation of our heavenly father who generously creates the universe, including humanity. He didn't have to make us, but he chose to. And then we chose ourselves instead of our loving father. We, like the younger son, said to God that we want to go our own way. In Romans, a book later in the Bible, the Apostle Paul says that we are enemies of God because we choose to follow the things of the world instead of him. We are the younger son. And if you're a woman, you're still a son. The Bible says it a lot. Rather than accept the glorious and generous life that God offers us, each and every one of us chose sin. We chose to run from the God for whom we were made and pursue what we wanted. Like the younger son, we have squandered our property in reckless living. In verse 30, later in the story, this reckless living is rephrased as having devoured the father's property with prostitutes. This sounds like pretty severe reckless living. You might think, whatever I've done is nowhere near that bad. I've never said to my father that I want him to die and I want all his money. But the Bible is pretty clear. It is that bad. Without God, the Bible tells us that we are slaves to sin. The reality is that without Jesus, we are all the younger son. We have all made ourselves enemies of God. It is hard but incredibly important to understand how sinful we are without Jesus. To know the generosity of the Father, both in this story and in our own lives, we have to understand the behavior of the younger son and therefore ourselves. Um, If you weren't here a few weeks ago, I really recommend listening to Jeremy Webb's really exposing and sobering sermon on sin to explore this more deeply. You can find that on the website or on Spotify. And so the younger son has squandered his money. And we learn in verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. We don't know how long he's been away for, but spending all of that money probably took some doing. The truth is that this is true for us as well. Just as we squandered our property in reckless living as the younger son, we too will find that there is a severe famine when we spent everything, even before then. No matter what we do, no matter where we choose to find our joy, our happiness, our purpose, whatever desires we choose to satisfy outside of Jesus, there will always be famine and we will never truly be satisfied. I know that I've tried to find my worth and sense of self in so many different things. Throughout school and university, I tried to find it in my academic achievements. I've tried to find it in my reputation, in my marriage, as a mother, in so many different ways. There is so much temptation to take what God has given me and use it as I see fit. But there will always be a severe famine if you live like that. It will never be enough. You will always be in want. And so we find out that this Jewish boy does the unthinkable. Oh, I've missed out a slide. It's fine. Um, He hires himself out to feed pigs. For a Jewish person, pigs are totally unclean. He would not have gone near them. And so this action shows that the younger son has reached absolute rock bottom. He's reached a point of utter desperation 
Jesus tells us that he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. He is in absolute desperation. He has nowhere to turn to. The only place that he can think of is the father who is forsaken, the father who he has wished dead, the father who he has gone away from. He's realized that the place he belongs was the place where he was in the beginning. And the boy knows that in Jewish tradition, an apology wouldn't have been enough. He has to make restitution and throw himself on his father's mercy. And so he hatches a plan and rehearses a speech that we see in verses 18 and 19. He says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I don't know if any of you have ever done this before, but when I was younger, I used to rehearse speeches when I'd done something wrong and how I was going to tell my parents. Um, And I remember one occasion when I broke a mirror in my brother's bedroom. I wasn't supposed to be in my brother's bedroom. Um, And the mirror broke and I absolutely panicked. I think I probably hid for a little while, tried to sweep up the shards and then realized that ultimately they were going to work out that it was me and I'd done it anyway. Um... And so I spent a long time rehearsing a speech of exactly what I was going to tell my parents, how I was going to say it wasn't really my fault, the mirror was balanced precariously, and I had to go in Josh's room to pick something up that I needed for my homework or some other nonsense that was probably a lie. Um, And I spent a long time planning the speech and planning how I would make restitution to my parents. I would give a little bit of my pocket money every week so that we could go and buy a new mirror so that Josh's room had a mirror and it would all be fine. And some of you might remember similar stories for yourselves. You might have done something wrong, um, maybe not as a child to your parents, but you might have wronged a, a friend or a family member, your spouse, and you might think to yourself, okay, I need to come up with a way of rehearsing this speech and making it okay with them. And so you can imagine this younger son as he says these things, just kind of going forward and working out exactly the right words to say, practicing it to himself time and time again, hoping beyond hope that his father would be gracious and compassionate and welcome him home. We'll go back to that, yeah. And so we can imagine the son in verse 20 when it says he arose and came to his father, just kind of shuffling his way along as he comes back from that far off country, saying the speech over and over, practicing it, making sure he says the exact right thing. And it's in this next part that it all changes. As the son comes close to his father's land, as he comes close, having rehearsed his speech, ready to give it, ready to say what he wants to say, comes an amazing line, one of my favorite lines in scripture. It starts with the word, but... And when we read that word in scripture, it usually means something good is coming. Um, You can look out for it as you read through things. It usually means that we were sinful, but God. Something amazing happens, but God. And when we read this passage, it says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Imagine with me the father who earlier on we were saying was standing on the edge of his property watching with tears in his eyes as his son walks away. And now we can imagine him standing on the edge of his home, looking out in the distance and hoping beyond hope that today would be the day that his son would finally come home. 
He knows his son has packed everything and taken it. He knows his son has wished him dead, but still he waits, longing for the son to come back. We know that he must have been looking and waiting because it says that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Imagine him squinting his eyes and looking in the distance and wondering if that familiar gate is really who he thinks it might be or if his mind is playing tricks on him. And he sees it and he knows that it's his son. And then he does the absolutely unthinkable for a Jewish man. He ran. He would have been wearing a long robe that would cover his legs. And in order to run, he would have had to hitch it up and disgrace himself by bearing his legs. But yet he ran. The father ran. He didn't saunter over or walk at even a slightly quicker pace, but he ran towards his son. And then we read that he embraced him and kissed him. This son that was starving, dirty, probably covered in the feces of the pigs he was feeding. The father doesn't care. He sees him, he feels compassion, and he embraces him and he kisses him. Before the son even gets a chance to let out this little speech that he's been rehearsing all the way home, there's no rebuke, there's no telling off. There's just a resounding welcome home to the son that was lost and has finally come home. And this is how the father responds to us as well. He runs after us. He pursues us. And when we choose to come to him, he embraces us in our dirt and our mess and our sin. And he kisses us and welcomes us home. The son that was lost finally at home with our father. I love this picture by an artist called Charlie Mackesy, who you might know from the boy, the fox, the mole. There's lots of different characters. But he painted this picture of the story of the prodigal son. And you can see there the real embrace of love that the father has. This is a picture that my parents have um, up in their house. And every time I see it, I'm reminded of the love and compassion and generosity of the father who embraces and kisses us in our mess and in our dirt and says that we are finally home with him. The son then goes on to tell his father that he has sinned against heaven and before you and is no longer worthy to be called his son. He says the speech that he's rehearsed. But the father, with no sense of scolding or derision, with kindness and generosity, and says, says in verse 22, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The best robe in the house would have been the one that belonged to the father. The ring would have represented the authority of the family. These gifts, far beyond what the son deserved, are lavish on the son. Not only is he generously welcomed when he didn't deserve it, but he's given gifts as well. The father is generous beyond measure. And we too are receivers of this same generosity. Though we do not deserve it, we are given the best robe, the robe of righteousness that belongs to Christ. We are given the ring of authority. We are called children of God and co-heirs with Christ. All we have to do is throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus, who took the punishment that we deserve, dying for our sin on the cross. Romans tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While the son was still covered in the dirt and the mess, while he was still waiting to say his speech and make restitution to his father, he is embraced and welcomed home. 
One of our daughter's middle names is Mercy for this very reason, because our prayer for her is that in her life she might throw herself at the mercy of Jesus and know the generous and undeserved riches of grace that he will offer to her in response. The father doesn't stop there, though. He decides to throw a party. He not only welcomes him and gives him gifts, but he's going to have a celebration as well. They kill the fattened calf and eat and celebrate. This son doesn't have to do anything but be the recipient of the generosity of the father. And we too need do nothing but accept what Jesus has done for us. Because when a sinner comes back to the father, he says, just like in verse 24, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And all of heaven rejoices over the son that has come home. This story is outrageous, and it would have been especially outrageous to the religious people to whom the story is addressed. That a father would welcome home his son, even after all he's done. And that's why if we're to read on in the passage, which you're very welcome to do, we'd hear the response of the older brother, who is the picture of the Pharisees and the scribes. He considers himself better than the younger son, and more worthy to be celebrated in the father's house. The religious folk didn't understand And if we're followers of Jesus, we often forget that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I've often thought to myself, I probably relate more to the older brother who's jealous of his brother. But actually, the reality is that I am the younger brother. I am the younger son. I have squandered my father's property in reckless living. And in order to be the generous people that God calls us to be, we have to understand and grasp who our God is. He is a generous God so that we can be generous people. We too can love and accept and welcome anyone because we have been loved and accepted and welcomed even though we did not deserve it. If you'd like to learn more about being a generous person of God, I've got another book recommendation for you. Um, This book, The Gospel Comes With a House Key, is excellent. Um, And I would love to lend you my copy as well. It's got annotations in so you can see what I thought was good at the same time. Um, And over the next few weeks as we continue this series, we're going to learn more about how generous God is and how that can make us generous people. But whatever you might think of God, going back to that word that you might have thought of in the beginning, whether you thought he was malicious or unkind or distant or aloof, he is powerful and mighty. He is a friend But he is also a generous and loving father waiting for us so that he can run and embrace and kiss us. And all we must do is throw ourselves on the outrageous, merciful and kind generosity of the father who chooses to welcome us home. Uh, I'm going to invite the band back up and I'm going to pray to finish. Father, thank you so much that you are a generous God, that you are merciful, that you are gracious. Thank you, Lord, that in Jesus you give us riches and gifts that we do not deserve. And Lord, this morning I pray that you would help us to throw ourselves at your feet, throw ourselves at your mercy. But Lord, we thank you that when we do that, that when we repent and turn to you, that you give us the robe of righteousness that belongs to Jesus, that you give us the ring of authority that you embrace us, that you kiss us, and that you call us home. Lord, we worship you and we thank you. Amen.